0: Welcome back to the Voting While Black podcast. We're talking with the candidates running for president in 2020, getting real about what they think about race and exactly how they would help the movement for racial justice. I'm Rashad Robinson from Voting While Black, the nation's largest Black-led, volunteer-driven voter mobilization program, a project of Color of Change PAC. My guest today is author and founder of several nonprofits, Marianne Williamson, whose campaign for president is based on a radical theme in politics, love. She has sold more than 3 million books on spirituality, healing and self-help, and women in society. She's helped establish several nonprofits focused on service and peace building. In this episode, Ms. Williamson talks about why she calls racism America's original character defect. We explored her views on reparations, as well as her ideas about how that money should be spent and who should be doing the spending. Thank you so much for joining us. You grew up in Texas, in the South. And um, I'd love for you to start off by talking a little bit about how racial justice, um, how race, how the fight for equality has played a role in your own life.
1: When I was a child, not much at all. I grew up in a politically progressive home. I remember the day that Martin Luther King was killed. I was 16 years old, actually. Then I remember I was um, sitting in, our den, and the television was on. And I saw, you know, in those days, breaking news meant something. And it really was something. It was a big deal. Yeah. And it was that Martin Luther King had been shot and killed. And I remember my father came home not too long afterwards, and he would drive in, he would come through the back door, and I ran up to him, and I said, Daddy, Daddy, Martin Luther King has been shot and killed. And I remember my father looked out into the distance, and I remember the look on his face, and he said, those bastards and i thought to myself those bastards does he know who killed him why did he say those bastards (laughs) it was my first exposure to he didn't have to know who killed him he knew who killed him and just the look on my father's face so that was the 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 home i grew up in but it wasn't specific to real information about race but when i went to college there was a man who I think lives here in New York today because um, he's a very well-known writer and yeah. jazz genius, this man named Stanley Crouch. Uh-huh. Stanley? Yeah, of course. So yeah. Stanley was a teacher of mine, a mentor of mine, and you can't have uh, two years in college with solid exposure to Stanley Crouch and not... Mm-hmm. Uh, have. He lays it down, what's really going on. Yeah. And uh, I was young at the time, so particularly as a college student, he was very, very important in my life. And a little bit later, I had a very meaningful relationship, a short time but meaningful time, with a congressman named Mickey Leland. Uh So there are certain things, not just about race, but about a lot of things. Once you see, you can't unsee.
0: Yeah. At Color of Change we talk a lot about um, the fact that people live in an integrated world, that we don't experience issues, we experience life. That the forces that hold people back are deeply interrelated, that uh, a racist criminal justice system requires a racist media culture to sustain it and create the energy for it. Um, Political inequality often goes hand in hand with economic inequality, that trying to solve an issue over here without solving root causes. And you talk a lot about root causes on stage as well. And so I'd love for you to um, talk a little bit about how you see sort of the framework of love
1: Building in terms of politics, terms and, of politics economics and, and economics race and, and race.
0: That. Building <clears throat> building the power we need to change I the understand. outcomes.
1: To me, when it comes to race, as when it comes to everything else we have to deal with, and we have to deal yes. with a lot, we need to all step back and take a larger look at American history. You know, if you're black, if you're Jewish, if you're gay, if you're a woman, there are all kinds of, or if just living in your family, you go to therapy and you want to know the history of your family, because if you know what happened before, you know where you fit in. And that same with an ethnic group, we're all into mm-hmm. learning the past. We need to do that more as Americans now. Mm-hmm. Because when you see the whole story of America, this is when it all comes together and you get, oh, I get it, because even the history of my people existed within a larger context of the history of, of, of the country. Mm-hmm. So the way I look at race in the United States, in order to unravel some very dark and dangerous elements that, ha- that are in active assault upon our democracy, we need to do so from, from the level of moral repair and i have had a thirty five-year career dealing with how spiritual principles apply in a very practical way to our life experience. One of those principles, it is a theme, it is universal to all the great religious and spiritual and personal uh, growth paths and traditions, has to do with admitting your character defects. Mm. So the Catholic goes to confession. In Judaism, the most holy day of the year is the day of atonement. In AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, you have to admit the exact nature of your character defects. Take a fearless moral inventory. And then this powerful notion of um, atonement and amends. Mm. So racism in the United States is our original character defect. In order to transform, you can't have the future you want unless and until you're willing to clean up the past. Mm -hmm. Now, it's not my experience or my belief that the average American is racist. Mm -hmm. But it is my experience that the average American is woefully undereducated about the history of race. But what has really impacted me throughout my career and continues to impact me on this campaign, and it doesn't surprise me really because I think we are a good and decent people, mm-hmm. I do believe that with all my heart, mm-hmm. is when people hear, they either never heard it, they, don't, they never learned it, but It's amazing what happens in an audience, even an all white audience, when you just become a little American history teacher for about Mm -hmm. three to five minutes. The the first slave ships were brought here in 1619, Mm -hmm. that slavery was not abolished till 1865. That's just short of 250 years. Laws were passed throughout the South that gave subpar economic, social, and political opportunities to black people. So what that means is that 100 years of slavery was followed by another hundred years of institutionalized violence against blacks. What do you call lynchings if not domestic terror? What do you call Ku Klux Klan if not domestic terror? So you walk people through that. So you say, so we're talking now 350 years. That's longer than this country has been in existence that there has been institution- It was institutionalized uh, violence against black people. Because I'm speaking from from the issue of moral repair, when I say to audiences, okay, let's walk through this. What is your moral responsibility? So if you've been kicking people to the ground for 350 years, I think we'd all agree that your moral responsibility is twofold. Number one, stop kicking. But number two, here, let me help you get back up. So that let me help you get back up. We have, I'm, I'm not trying to minimize the struggle, sacrifices, or successes of any of our ancestors, black or white, because yeah. there has been much. Absolutely. But the average person can also see ways in which we're sliding backwards too. Yeah. Mass incarceration, racial disparity, and criminal sentencing, chipping away at the at the voting rights
0: act, et cetera. So you so yeah, so you so you talk about the pendulum, how it keeps swinging back, how something kind of I, and I'm I'm using my own words, like um, you know, how we end slavery and then we get reconstruction and then it swings back the other way. And Um, I'm interested in sort of how then do we get there, right? How if the forces have been so strong to sort of reset who's artificially on top and who's artificially on the bottom, how do we actually build whatever we need to build to get us to?
1: Well, yeah, but if I I may finish, that's my point. Because I'm, I'm almost there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because this is, none of this is going to happen unless the American people are enrolled. Yeah. So this is important. This yeah. is your how. Uh-huh. This is right. your how. Okay, all okay. right. So your mm-hmm. how is that people get, okay, so Germany paid reparations. Doesn't mean the Holocaust didn't happen, but it has gone far to establish reconciliation between Germany and the Jews of Europe. Yeah. So then you talk about how Ronald Reagan in 1988 signed the American Civil Liberties Act, whereby people who were who, the surviving prisoners from uh, the Japanese internment camps in World War II were paid between 20 and $22,000. So this is all explaining like why by the end of the 20th century, I mean, first of all, the 40 acres on a mule was promised at the time, but by the end of the 20th century, particularly reparations is not some odd concept. Mm-hmm. So that's first, because at first you've got to, if you don't enroll people Then there's no way to override the political and social forces. Yep. Right? So, what I get that I think is really significant is in the whitest states in America, when I've talked about what I just said, then the punchline is reparations, and people stand up and applaud because it's understandable. Now, for me, the issue, and this goes back to what you were saying, is the difference between race based policies and reparations. Reparations carry moral force because reparations and and therefore because they carry moral force, they affect the field emotionally and psychologically in a way that just economic race-based policies do not do. Because uh, reparations carry an inherent acknowledgement of a wrong that was done, Mm -hmm. a debt that is owed, and the willingness on the part of a people to pay it. Yeah. So I've spent in my career decades yeah. uh, doing atonement work. It's now time to amends work. Mm-hmm. They're, they're part of the same thing. Mm-hmm. If, if you uh, took money from me, Mm-hmm. I would really appreciate the apology. But at a certain point I'd also like, like my like money back. Well not for that. Oh, yes. we're gonna talk about it. I feel no, 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 just do, do something. Yes, we've, we've got enough evidence now. Yes. So that's how I feel. Yes. that whole evidence and commission conversation to me is, yes. is, is, yeah. is uh-huh. we should all see that for what it is. Therefore, I believe that a if i give you reparations and my plan is for 200 to 500 billion to be dispersed over a period of 20 years that would be given to a reparations council the stipulation on the part of the united states government is that the money be used for purposes of economic and educational renewal now let me tell you why i think that's so much more important than race based policies because mm-hmm. this is when you're yeah, out, yeah, okay yeah. so An issue that you hear a lot about Mm -hmm. as I travel the country regarding race today is gentrification. And so the race-based policy reparations conversation goes, businesses can't be thrown out and Mm -hmm. anti-discrimination and minority hiring, blah, blah, blah. People's eyes just glaze over, right? It's not the big story. Let's say you pick five seriously successful black real estate moguls. Mm -hmm. okay, And let's say they're on the real estate committee. So option A. Which is the race-based policy? We're going to have anti-discrimination, and if somebody's been in their apartment for thirty years, the landlords can't kick them out. And it's just we still stay on the wheel of suffering. With mm-hmm. the with the yeah. uh, with the reparations story, the real estate moguls sit there, and they're looking at a map, and they decide what cities, and they say, "We need to buy those six blocks." Then you're talking power. Mm-hmm. I think there's force there. There's power there because if I owe you money, I don't get to tell you how to spend it. Yeah. So it's really important the decisions that are made by white America versus the decisions that are made by black America. Mm-hmm. So we need an integrative, holistic politics that addresses more than just the symptom, really moves down into all the ways in which certain psychological, emotional, spiritual, and moral, as well as economic and political Dynamics need to be rebalanced and
0: brought into harmony so there's there's a lot of discussion around what is the what is the sort of debt owed to descendants of slaves like my family. Okay. and then there's conversation about what is owed to folks who may have experienced Jim Crow and um, and other sort of legal um, aspects of discrimination in this country. And those are very like complicated. Um, um, conversations, but what I'm hearing from you is really a focus on descendants of slaves.
1: Yes, and within that, that's, those questions should be addressed by Black, black American, uh-huh. not by White American. Uh-huh. There's a line that we, we, we need to delineate there. This is a very pregnant moment in American history. You've got a younger generation. If you say to a 65-year-old something about historical trauma They might look at you and they go, well, I understand how that's psychological, but how does that relate to this? You talk to a 20-year-old today about historical trauma and they go, oh, yeah, well, we need to deal with that.
0: So there's a, a lot of conversation that you've said on the stage and out in the larger campaign trail about the role of corporations um, and really talking about uh, the role of corporations as you talk. And we talk about many of the problems The I'm interested in sort of what you see as the would be the role of your presidency in dealing with the outsized power of corporations, the color of change. (laughs) We're the only national black civil rights organization that doesn't take corporate money. And we, and it's part of our DNA um, because we can't can't hold folks accountable that are paying to keep the lights on. And so we recognize that role and your push around corporations um, is something that's definitely welcomed. And I'd be interested in hearing sort of moving from the diagnostics of the problem to sort of what we do about it?
1: Well, this particular problem began in earnest in 1980. It was in the 1980s that the whole theory of trickle down economics Mm -hmm. took hold, was promulgated very forcefully, very powerfully, and corrupted the United States government and ultimately hijack the moral-value system of this country. It was the notion that all the corporation should owe is fiduciary responsibility to its stockholders, even if that was at the expense of the workers or the community or the environment. Now, interestingly enough, Milton Friedman, who was the main articulator of that, himself said, but this will only be safe if you also have a universal basic income. Interestingly Mm -hmm. enough. But that was kind of left out by those who promulgated it. So that we have moved from a society in which we try to have democratic principles or at least agree that we were supposed to. I'm not romanticizing America before the 80s, but there was a consensus we were supposed to try. Mm -hmm. And so we went from democratic values and humanitarian values at their core of the democratic values, ordering our civilization to market forces, unfettered by any ethical or moral consideration, and to a great extent, unfettered by any kind of governmental regulation. We didn't have wealth inequality like Mm -hmm. this in the 1970s. We now are at a point where 1% of Americans own more wealth than the bottom 90%. This has decimated the middle class. It has Created a situation where 40% of all Americans live in chronic economic anxiety. We have not only people in poverty, but also the stress and the anxiety mm-hmm. on a daily basis of that which is near poverty. And as we know, even though there are more white people living in poverty than black people, among the black population, mm-hmm. the percentage is higher. So we have a new aristocracy. And we repudiated it in 1776, and we need to repudiate it again. Yeah.
0: So I'm interested, if we go back to your plan around finding the real estate, you know, barons or whatever in the black community, or finding these folks that could make the Well, they wouldn't
1: be barons, because they're just people, righteous commerce.
0: Commerce. Okay, because I'm just interested in sort of like the idea of ensuring that we don't end up with a rainbow oligarchy, right? Okay, but let's let's,
1: discuss that, because that's important. This situation, I don't believe any socioeconomic group in the United States has a monopoly on values. Yes. There are many very wealthy people who agree with the conversation that we're having here. Yeah. The fact that you're a rich person doesn't mean you're a greedy bastard necessarily. And the fact you're a poor person doesn't mean you're noble and pure necessarily. We want to be very careful about that. Mm -hmm. There is such a thing as righteous commerce. I'm not anti capitalism, I just want capitalism with a conscience. The problem in America is not that people can get rich. It's good that people can get rich here. The problem in America is that not enough people can get rich today. So there are many Mm -hmm. wealthy people in the United States who created their wealth through righteous commerce and, you know, should, should be honored for it and celebrated for it no more and no less than people who perhaps make a lot less money but are also dignified and do meaningful mm-hmm, work. Mm-hmm. And I I I believe the reason I said that about the real estate moguls is because if you're talking about billions of dollars to be spent that could be spent on real estate, you kind of should get the people who know that world. Uh-huh. uh-huh. And obviously not the not the people whose whose work is known for some compromise of ethical values, but there are yes. plenty of good rich people in this country too. Well absolutely. I mean <laughs> yeah. and some of
0: them are, are supporters of color of change. That's, that's so i right. so I'm so yeah, I'm, so, yeah. so, yeah, so awesome. I so I'm I'm not saying that, but I am saying that the that the rules that currently exist, right, that um, have allowed for um, as you talked about, sort of um, an accumulation of wealth that has um, made huge disparities. We need to change change that. Okay, so what we
1: need to do, we need to repeal the 2017 uh, tax cut. The 2017 tax cut is $2 trillion tax cut Mm -hmm. where 83 cents of every dollar went to the very richest uh, individuals and organizations put back in the middle class tax cut. Then we need to stop the corporate subsidies by which we gave $26 billion last year alone to oil and gas. Mm -hmm. We need the U.S. government to take back the right to negotiate lower drug prices uh, with big pharmaceutical companies. We need to take a serious look at the military budget, Mm -hmm. where the military gets what they need, I think we'd all agree needs to be given, but how much above that has to do with short-term profitability for Mm -hmm. defense contractors only. We need to say to people who have a billion dollars in assets really happy for you, but we'd like a 3% tax on that. Mm -hmm. We need to say to people who have 50 million or over, Mm -hmm. happy for you, but we want a a, a 2% tax on those assets. Then we have some cash on hand. Then we have to, one of my big issues, and this does have a huge racial component, there are millions of chronically traumatized children in the United States, in the richest country in the world, to withhold education from any child is a passive form of oppression. It is insane the way in the United States we base our educational funding primarily on property taxes. So that means if a child grows up in a financially advantaged neighborhood, they have a very good chance of a high quality public school education. If they do not, you have things such as, first of all, let's also remember, there are 13 million hungry children in the United States. We have children who go to school in, in America and ask the teacher if the teacher might have some food for them. We have millions of American children who go to school in classrooms where there are not even the adequate school supplies with which to teach a child to read. If a child cannot learn to read by the age of eight, the chances of high school graduation are drastically decreased, and the chances of incarceration are drastically increased. Every school in America, and this is what I want as president, every school in America should be a palace of learning Mm -hmm. and culture and the arts. That's why I want a department of children and youth because it all happens in childhood. We need a massive realignment of investment in direction of our
0: children. So these are. And the so why why that doesn't why doesn't that happen already? What are the forces <laughs> okay. that are standing in that? Okay. What, are, what are the forces that are standing in the way? And how does President Williamson get us past those okay, forces well, that have prevented that from happening? This is not it's, a mystery. It, yes. This is not yeah. a mystery.
1: So we have. And once again, this is not an anti-capitalist argument. There is, however, a virulent strain of capitalism that has, has so taken hold since the 80s and so corrupted our government. It, number one, requires cheap labor. Yeah. And number two... Doesn't care about children or old people because Uh neither children nor old people serve its purposes. Now, once this has corrupted the government, the government, for all intents and purposes, become has become our political establishment has become too often handmaiden to those corporate forces. That's who it's listening to. So what has our political establishment done about these millions of children? Just normalize their despair. Yeah. normalize their despair because, number one, they're not old enough to vote, so there's no constituency. Number two, not old enough to work, so there's no financial leverage, so how can they compete with the money that those corporate forces are giving? It, you know, what we yeah. need is a mother in the White House. Oh, you <laughs> take that however you yeah, want. Yeah, yeah. You need somebody who says, no, this stops uh-huh, now. Uh-huh. Now, not incrementally because we're going to have a policy here, a uh-huh. policy there. We need fundamental disruption of the patterns that, that keep this in place.
0: So the final question, and I've been asking this same question to each of the candidates that we've been talking to, and this question is really important to me at Color of Change. We, we center a lot of our work around Black joy. And Black joy is not the absence of pain, but it's the presence of what we want. It's the presence of aspiration, what we're fighting expression. for. And Black people have contributed so much to this country to make this country great. And a lot of what happens in a campaign, in a campaign season, is candidates are on the stage talking to the black community about what they're going to do for them, what how they're going to fix problems, fix disparities. And all of that is part of the process, and that's how we build power, and candidates should be addressing this. I'm interested in who are the black people that have helped shape your understanding of the world and helped and helped shape, you know, who you are today?
1: Well, I'm a woman whose white privilege came
0: from a black woman, remember?
1: Mm-hmm. Oprah Winfrey gave me my career.
0: Mm. Mm.
1: So, yes, and Oprah... Oprah, 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 because she she gave me the opportunity to experience how this country works. Mm. And I think there is no love without justice. There is no joy without justice. Absolutely, And that's that whole thing about the difference between race-based policies and reparations. There's justice that is necessary for people to feel that things have been righted. So whether it's criminal justice or economic justice, just racial justice in general, in terms of the history mm. of this country. I have worked with people in palaces and I've worked with people in prisons. And I have seen deeply that we're all the same. I've seen deeply, not only is it that no socioeconomic group has a monopoly on values, no socioeconomic group has a monopoly on intelligence. Mm. No socioeconomic group has a monopoly on nobility. No socioeconomic group has a monopoly on love for this country. Mm. And People want to feel, and this is one of the things that I think Oprah has told the world, and she's so right. People want to feel seen, mm. and people want to feel heard. And some of the least advantaged and most oppressed people in this country, I think, feel heard and seen by me, mm. because they can feel it in their in their guts. She's, she's been in that room with us. And some of the people who we most need to enroll in this yeah. because of their wealth and power also feel seen and heard by me because they know that I've been in those rooms too. We just need to speak to the best in everyone. People hear you on the level that you speak to them from. And if we speak to the nobility and the intelligence and the conscience in one another, remember Martin Luther King said, we need a coalition of conscience. So when we bring together all the people, no matter what socioeconomic group, what racial group, what religious group into the place where, okay, we're all good people here. What do we need to do to make things right in this country? Then we can create extraordinary political power and exert extraordinary political force.
0: If our political campaigns and our efforts to decide on who we're going to elect can create more space for all of us to be seen or heard, that would make so much opportunity and so much sense. Um, Thank you for joining me. Um, Thank you for joining us here on this podcast and good luck out on the trail. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank Thank you so much. Thank you, Ms. Williamson, for joining us today. And thanks to all of our listeners. Before you go, text, tweet, and email this episode to your friends. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Voting While Black podcast so you'll get next week's episode We'll be featuring Senator Elizabeth Warren, who will talk about why Facebook and other corporations are so afraid of her. Voting While Black is a national voter mobilization project based in Black joy and building Black power. We will kick off hundreds of brunches and other events in 2020 to bring Black folks and our allies together to get informed about the election. Sign up and be the first to hear about the Voting While Black tour at votingwhileblack.com. Thank you to everyone who helped make this show possible, including our own Whitney Bugs, Tanika Boyd, Valerie Brown, Jennifer Edwards, Kwesi Chapin, Devorn Hamiku, Vanessa Ross, Drew Daniels, and Alexis Grishaber. Additional thanks to Ryan Sensor. This show was produced by Color of Change PAC in partnership with Natalie Wren from Neon Hum Media. I'm Rashad Robinson. See you next week.